If you have sleep apnea and struggle with CPAP, consider that CPAPs were invented in 1980. Do you even remember 1980? Everyone's house had one telephone. There were like four TV channels. Come on. You played video games in arcades and watched movies in theaters. GPS was a folded map and a helpful gas station attendant. And social media was inviting the neighbors to come look at your vacation pictures. A lot has changed since 1980. Now, for people who struggle with CPAP, there's Inspire. Inspire is an implanted device that treats sleep apnea inside your body at the click of a remote. It's the only FDA-approved sleep apnea treatment of its kind. While you sleep, Inspire keeps you breathing normally and resting comfortably. No mask, no hose, just sleep. To learn more, visit InspireSleep.com. Inspire, sleep apnea innovation. Inspire is not for everyone. Talk to your doctor to see if it's right for you and review important safety information at InspireSleep.com. So in today's episode, I'm joined by Ash Grisman of The Training Stimulus. The Training Stimulus is a methodology based around optimizing exercise mechanics and anatomy. And I don't think I've met anyone better than Ash at taking quite complex topics often and putting them into some of the best analogies I've ever heard. I've learned so much from him in terms of improving my programming and exercise selection and execution for clients, as well as just how I view kind of the bigger picture of training. Um, so thank you very much for joining me today, Ash, to talk about some quite important topics. That's very kind of you. Thank you very much. I'm pleased to be here. Thank you, mate. So I think we both kind of agree and we've spoken off air that there's almost a bit of a problem in the industry at the moment. It started off as a, a really positive movement where like more and more people are getting into this functional training, if you want for a better word. Yep. Um, women in particular, which is great. You know, they're signing up for CrossFit competitions, high rock, Spartan races, or even just strength training in general. Um, and there are some problems that have occurred as a result of that, isn't there? Where yeah. that's maybe gone a little bit too far. So it's something that I'm seeing more and more of after the over the last couple of years. Um, and I know you are as well. So I think it's a really important conversation to have. So yeah, thank you for, for joining me today to get into that. Pleasure. I'm looking forward to it. So um, just give us a little bit of kind of the background story to start off with, Ash, before we get into that. Tell me a little bit about yourself and how you got into coaching. Sure. So I got into coaching basically to solve my own problem. So I had a recurring neck and shoulder injury from the age of 14 to 24 which is kind of on and off um it's a whiplash type injury and it was bad but not that bad so I never had really long periods of time where I couldn't play but I was in and out of physio constantly um, in that sort of injury rehab cycle and I would do everything they told me to do I would feel better come back and the issue would just reoccur and after 10 years of this frustration, I started my corporate job. I was sat in the office, not doing my job, just browsing the internet. And I just started to think, this is now actually getting a bit frustrating. I'm getting a bit sick of doing the same things again and again, going through the same cycle. So I started doing my own research, trying to figure out what was really going on and if there were other approaches to try and address what was really going on. Because I'd had MRIs, I'd seen surgeons, I'd spoken to all different types of practitioner and no one could really make a significant change. And that's when I discovered functional fitness, when I discovered CrossFit and the idea of mobility training. So I went down the rabbit hole into all the Kelly Sturette, Supple Leopard stuff, which was great at the time. And it was kind of eye-opening to realize that there were people out there focused on movement quality rather than, I'd always been into the gym, but I think all the knowledge that was widely available was very much bodybuilding centric and, you know, muscle isolation and hypertrophy. And it was 
yeah, a complete revelation to me, the idea that you could be training to move better and to perform better, which nowadays sounds so ridiculous that that was actually not uh, widely available. So I sort of was getting fed up with my corporate job and thought, I want to do something in this space. This is always what I've been passionate about. And I realized that there were people out there who had knowledge and skills that could address these sorts of issues, essentially movement mechanics issues. So the body wasn't working in the way that it wanted to work. And we need to get clear at putting in an input into the body to teach it to move better. And that's why the company is called the Training Stimulus, because essentially everything we're doing training wise is trying to create a stimulus to elicit adaptation in the way that we want. That could be get bigger, could be get stronger, could be get leaner, but it could also be to improve your motor patterns and move more efficiently. So, um, yeah, flash forward, that was what 11 years ago now, I've sort of done as much research as I can, done a few different mentorships, uh, done a lot of strength and conditioning courses to try and piece together my view on the way the body works and the way that we can speak to it in the language that it likes to get it to do the things that we want it to do. And yeah, now I'm fortunate enough to be teaching other people to do that and take a lot of joy in my students getting their clients great results uh, to move better. So yeah, that's the whistle stop tour, I guess. I love that. So even just the, the language you use around training, like for me, that was quite different. I'd not really heard of someone um, use that kind of language, like, you know, talk to the body, put this input in. And mm -hmm. um, for me, that kind of appealed to like the science part of my brain. So yeah. that was why, you know, when I first started consuming your content, I was like really, really drawn to it. And it helped me to understand a lot of things that I, I, I previously kind of, I feel like I, I knew because mm -hmm. it was like, I've done this for seven years, eight years, and I've seen this and I've evaluated it and yeah, that works, but maybe didn't always necessarily know why at, at a deeper level. So yeah, you, you know, you do a fantastic job of that. I'm, I'm sure we'll get to um, at the end, you know, please feel free to share the mentorship and all those details because that's that really valuable stuff. Thank you. So yeah, no, thank you, Ash. Um, so yeah, we've got this problem at the moment in the industry. I mean, tell me what you see, what what kind of trend has happened over the last few years that, that you see and, and what is the issue that has arisen as a result of that for, for females in particular, but definitely for some, some guys out there too? Sure. I think it's just the way things are these days, everything gets taken to an extreme very, very quickly. So as soon as a new idea enters the fitness industry, somebody just goes all in on it and gets obsessed with it and takes it to the limit and because of social media everyone's in this kind of arms race that I'm going to do it more than that yep. person I saw online yeah, so that's the fitness industry <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> and I think that now that fitness has become a sport it's be it's become a very confusing space in that the fit health and fitness industry originally was about looking better and feeling better and hopefully improving some health markers then it became a sport and it came became about winning and competing and they're actually very, very different goals. If you're trying to be as strong as possible, there will be an inflection point where your health and longevity actually is negatively impacted. Same goes for almost any athletic endeavour. Like Olympians are not the pinnacle of health. They're the pinnacle of athleticism and performance. And there is a trade-off to be made when you are pushing your body to its absolute limit. And I think it's quite confusing for people nowadays because the poster men and women that people look up to are these extreme athletes that are amazing in so many different ways but aspiring to be like them can actually be counterproductive for the average person's goals because they don't recognize that they might be 
a professional athlete, their whole life is dedicated to their training, their nutrition, their sleep, their personal life is all sacrificed in the name of performing. Whereas they're trying to hold down the job, might have a partner and kids and all the rest of it. So they're asking themselves, they're asking too much of themselves from a training and performance perspective, which ends up pushing them into a negative space rather than a positive space. So I think you can describe it as overtraining or under-recovering or um, trying to do too much too soon. There's all different angles to view the same problem, which is essentially people asking themselves to be athletes uh, without giving the requisite sacrifices elsewhere or requisite trade-offs elsewhere, I guess. Yeah, I know. There's so much to unpack there. I love it. I love this conversation because every single day I'm in that CrossFit box. I'm training clients. And you, you just want to shape people sometimes, don't you? Um, I mean, let's let's kind of go back around to starting with fitness has become a sport because that in itself is just such a great way of explaining it because by definition, if now what we do is sport rather than going to the gym, then surely that makes us athletes, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think that does clarify things, it should clarify things a little bit in that if you look at other sports, people don't think of them as systems to be healthy and fit. Like you'd, You might have some fitness because you play five-a-side football every week, but it's not a health system. It's not a way of uh, getting, I mean, you can lose some weight for sure, but it's not the way to improve your body composition. And it gets confusing because in sports like CrossFit, some people do improve their body composition radically, but it doesn't mean that the competitive side of CrossFit is the way to optimally improve your body composition. There are a plethora of, a, plethora, plethora of other options um, available, which probably have a lot lower risk um, and might get you there faster. So one of the conversations I like to have with my clients is for them to make a personal decision on the sliding scale of where's their personal importance from absolute maximum competition, competitive performance. Like, do you want to go to the CrossFit Games and sacrifice a lot to get every last ounce of performance out of yourself? Or are you here to live a nice quality of life and live as long as possible, be as healthy as possible? Everyone exists somewhere on that continuum and you kind of need to make a choice on what's worth it and what's not worth it because there will be sacrifices required to go towards that higher performance end as compared to going a little bit slower and potentially um, having better health markers rather than performance markers. Yeah, no, that's so important. Is that for the people listening that are kind of trying to coach themselves through this process and for the, the coaches listening as well, is that obviously a conversation you have right at the start when you work with a client and is it something that you kind of reevaluate and check in on and see if it's changed along that coaching journey yeah for sure like in an initial consultation that's one of the questions that i would put on my intake form is just you get an idea of whether they've thought about it at all or um they haven't and it's the first time they thought about it because it puts a lot of context around a lot of decisions as in say you're a competitive crossfitter there are certain movements you absolutely have to be able to do Otherwise, you can't turn up to a competition because you won't be able to do an event. Whereas for somebody who's just training for general health and fitness, there are no movements that you 100% have to do. You can always find a variation or substitution to get the same, the same training stimulus without having to do that specific movement pattern. So once they can see how that 
puzzle fits together, everything seems to make a little bit more sense. Whereas previous to that discussion, they might think that they have to do a snatch because everyone else is doing snatch that they see who does fitness. But the reality is, unless you're competing in CrossFit or weightlifting, you don't have to do a snatch. Like if you want to, you can choose to do do so, but just know where it fits in your list of priorities as to whether it has to be on or, or not. Yeah, it's pretty low down mine. Uh, believe me, I try and avoid them uh, yeah. because I'm not very good at them. Yeah. So yeah, no, that, that, that's, that's spot on. People do need to have that conversation with themselves. But for those people that they, they're not, in their mind at least, they're not trying to be an athlete, right? They're not trying to take CrossFit seriously, but mm. they are signing up to things like just local scaled comps or they're doing Spartan races. They're maybe doing 10Ks, half marathons, high rocks, whatever it is, right? And this person in their mind, they don't see themselves as an athlete, but they are signing up for competitions which involve them pushing themselves hard, training regularly and doing having to do certain movements, specific movements, which then by definition makes them an athlete. I mean, what would you kind of say to that person? Because when we have that disconnect between identity versus what you're actually trying to do, obviously there's a series of, of knock-on consequences that occur from that. For sure. I think if you're competing, you're an athlete. And I think almost everybody should view themselves as an athlete of sorts in that you've got to look after the machine. You only get one body for your whole life. So you should be yeah, regularly maintaining it and looking after it as best as you can and preparing it for what you're about to ask it to do. So if you're going to ask it to compete and push yourself to your absolute limit, you have to have ticked a few boxes along the way. Like if Everyone can kind of see that you shouldn't sign up for a marathon having done very little running and expect to come out of it unscathed. But oh, there you call me out like that. Is that what sit, you've done? Sitting yeah. here with a knee injury. I'm like, <laughs> right. Yeah. Feel personally attacked. Yeah. But you like you know that's probably not the best preparation. Oh yeah, it was to, stupid, but you know, I did yeah. it anyway. Yeah, exactly. Um do as I say, not as I do. Yeah, that's right. Um but I think that line of thinking doesn't get applied so well to these functional fitness comps because they think, oh, you know, I go to the gym three or four times a week, I do fitness, now I'm gonna go and do a five event day at uh, this competition and it's wildly beyond the typical ask of your body and the fundamental principle of training is progressive overload the body slowly and steadily adapts to you asking incrementally more of it over a long period of time and there is a rate that limits how fast you can adapt you can't go from running one mile to 26 miles in a day everyone knows that but if you build it up over time. I didn't. <laughs> no, yeah. If you if you build it up over time, the body will yeah. grow, repair, adapt, and you will be able to run 26 miles. And some people can do it four times over in a day now. So we need to approach these competitions in a similar way in that if you're if you're going to go and do five events in one day, your training volume should have progressively built up so that isn't a ridiculous system shock because the system shock and the massive spikes in stress on the body is where injuries happen. Any injury is your the tolerance of your tissues has been exceeded. You've asked too much of one specific structure and the situations when that happens are when that structure hasn't adequately been prepared for the, the demand that you've placed on it, almost full stop. Like You can apply that logic to even... A car crash, right? If you had progressively built up car crash-like impacts, you'd be able to tolerate a low-level car crash much better than somebody who hadn't. So even in those random chance uh, accidents, 
the same stuff applies. But when we have a better idea of the demand on the body that's coming up, we can and should prepare the body for it. And I think Hyrox is a really nice example of this where we're seeing a surge in Hyrox classes. Because we know what the workout is, we can um, prepare the body more sensibly, more progressively, build up, practice the movements, practice the weights, everything, practice your pacing. So by the time the race comes around, a lot of people are turning up actually in really good shape for the event. And they're, I, I haven't actually heard of anybody coming out of a high rocks competition with a serious injury, which I think speaks volumes as to the benefit of predictable yeah. programming in a competition. Whereas the opposite case is in functional fitness and CrossFit competitions where you don't know what the events are going to be. It could be really heavy. It could be really fast. It could be uh, lots of plyometric stuff. And you probably, unless you have been doing it for a really long time and have been really well programmed, it's very difficult to prepare your body adequately for these unknown challenges. Yeah, that's such a great point. And that's why I, I'm quite happy to kind of push is not the right word. It's never my place to obviously push goals on clients. But when people are like, oh, you know, shall I work towards something? You know, sometimes clients do need a little push to, to mm -hmm. challenge themselves. And I think Hyrox is brilliant for that because obviously I can do exactly that. I can program for them in a way where they're not going to turn up and be put in a bunch of positions or exposed to exercises that are potentially going to, you know, cause that risk of injury where, where you do know exactly what the race is in advance, which uh, I think, you know, do you think, I mean, I've watched the High Rocks documentary. They don't talk about it in this sense, but do you think that's kind of part of the reason why they created it that way so that people could have something which is predictable and they can train for? Like, is that kind of the angle they went for, do you think, versus yeah. CrossFit? Yeah, 100%. So they did an event at WIT that I went to a while back with the founders and that was one of the reasons they structured it like they Smart. did. Yeah, so they, I think one or two of the guys have a background in endurance events. So Ironman or Ironmans, I can't remember which one it is, and marathons. So that's one of the, the bits of feedback that everyone gives is that they're always really well run. Like it's organised very well. The stations are all very well set up. The, the flow of people is very well organised, which I think comes from that event experience. But when they were thinking about an accessible functional fitness competition. They're like, right, we're going to pick movements that are a good test of fitness in our eyes that everyone can do without having done tons of specific training. But it has to be repeatable so that um, John in London compete, can compete with Steve in Barcelona. And I think that is more like a marathon, right? In that yes. individual courses vary slightly, but the overall task is the same. And it means that times can be comparable uh, which I think is a challenge in CrossFit except for the benchmark workouts you know if somebody wins event two at strength and depth in London it's hard to compare whether that person's a better athlete compared to somebody who wins event three at the French throwdown and there's something nice about that in that it's always new and always exciting and there's a lot more strategizing that has to happen on the fly when you see a CrossFit workout come out but in terms of cold, hard facts, it's much easier to compare high rock scores than CrossFit scores. Which I think is quite important because if we if we bring this back to the, the problem that we're facing and, and as coaches, we're trying to hopefully have a part in solving. We've already got people that are overtraining in proportion to the fact that they don't see themselves as an athlete. And because they mm -hmm. don't see themselves as an athlete, they're not kind of topping up that recovery bank account. So why would we make it even harder for them 
then it needs to be by also throwing a bunch more variables into the mix, right? Which means that high rocks is probably a better goal for yeah. some of these people to work towards. Yeah, I'd definitely say so. For the general population, like I said earlier, the spiky volume is what we want to avoid. So when we have a lot of unknown variables, we're much more likely to get spiky volume. And we talked about it in a podcast episode recently in that when you're programming CrossFit, there's so many things to consider to try and achieve progressive overload in any of them is a lot harder than having a smaller list of movements to work on. And when I think the classic bad CrossFit program is totally random and you basically chuck a bunch of movements on the whiteboard, throw a bunch of numbers against them. And <laughs> in that scenario, week to week, you could go from zero reps in a movement to 500 reps to 200 reps to 300, all with different weights as well. And it's so hard to ensure that nice, steady progression. It's possible, but it just takes a huge amount more thought and calculation, which, uh, because it's so hard, doesn't often get done. It makes me laugh. So I remember, do you remember when obviously 300 came out and all of a sudden like 300 workouts with a range yeah. and it's like, hold on. It's a lot of reps of a movement that you've never done before. Yeah, exactly. Um, but I'm sure, I mean, we can circle back around to that in terms of like CrossFit programming and stuff and maybe the, the, the coach is listening. But because, um, yeah, there's there's obviously loads there that we, we can unpack, mm. but probably more aimed at obviously the people writing the workouts and kind of the everyday athlete turning up. So I don't know about you, but one one issue I see. So if, if we've we've got this, this this problem, right, and we've identified that, We've identified that sport in itself is now fitness, which is is a, sorry, fitness in itself is now a sport, which I absolutely love. I think it was Dan, wasn't it, that first kind of said that, um, and I think that's such a great way of viewing at it. So now you can understand. Okay, well, I'm therefore an athlete, but as far as I'm aware, I mean, I don't know too many professional athletes, or I was technically one for a little while, and I never cared about how I looked. Yeah, <laughs> professional athletes don't care about how they look, right? How they look is a byproduct, yes, of obviously their training and, and their nutrition and maybe within reason how much body fat or how much muscle mass they've got they might try and purposefully change that at some point for their sport but generally speaking the physique is is just a byproduct or an outcome right yeah but when we look at this uh gem pop person who we are now calling an athlete they're an everyday athlete they're training hard they're training hard on purpose they also have aesthetic goals or maybe that's even their their main goal and they are using things like crossfit etc as the vehicle for an aesthetic goal yeah so they have kind of indirectly without meaning to turn themselves into an athlete yeah. because they're training really hard. They're doing lots of volume. They're maybe even signing up for competitions, but they're still using it for an aesthetic goal. Mm. And then because they've also got an aesthetic goal, we now obviously throw potentially being in a calorie deficit into the mix. Whereas, you know, um, I'm sure you've watched even like tears videos of what I eat in a day, like, you know, puts away a lot of calories, right? Yeah. But these, these girls aren't doing that. I know some girls that are, are going to CrossFit and they're pretty good at it, to be honest. And they're on 1500 calories a day. Um, yeah, don't even get into that. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, you know, you know who you are, and um, yeah, I mean, so obviously, unlike, unlike the point I'm getting at, is unlike an actual athlete that doesn't really have an aesthetic goal, is not going to be in a calorie deficit. These everyday athletes that are also training for body composition goals are right, and that in itself is what probably exaggerates a lot of these these problems massively. I think um, I like the analogy of having a stress cup where any sort of stress can go into your cup. And if your cup's overflowing, that's when you run into problems. And a calorie deficit is another stressor. Your body doesn't like being in a deficit. It's, it's thinking, shit, there's not enough food around. My survival chances are going down. So it puts you into a stress state. Combine that with really high intensity exercise and potentially a stressful job and potentially stressful personal life. 
your stress cup is going to get filled up very, very quickly, which is not a good situation if you want to lose fat. So it's very counterproductive from all angles. Your performance is going to suffer in training. Your fat loss is going to suffer and the way you feel and your health is going to suffer. So you're now losing across the board because you're trying to do everything all at once and your priorities aren't clear as to which ones really matter. And if you are pursuing, I always compartmentalize to a certain extent health performance and aesthetics because the way you approach each of them is distinct and again it's like another slider thing like if you had 10 points budget to spend between those three categories how would you allocate them and I think if people had an honest conversation with themselves as to which ones really mattered like if you looked amazing but you didn't add any weight to your back squat this year would you be happier than if you personally I'd be okay with that yeah exactly I think most people (laughs) were coach yeah exactly so or would you rather add 20 kilos to your back squat and put on two kilos on your body I think other people probably like oh actually I don't think that's worth it so those trade-offs need to be discussed and give the individual an understanding so they can make an informed decision as to which is more important to them and generally I think People undervalue health and they get confused with aesthetics and performance. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Why do you think people do have this, I can achieve it all at once mindset? Is it ignorance? Is it looking up to athletes who are just more dedicated and potentially unpaired? So where has this, I can achieve absolutely everything all at once um, performance and a, you know body composition goals kind of mindset come from? Yeah, good question. I think it is looking up to people who seem to have it all so in social media land nowadays you'll see people who have an amazing physique they are incredible athletes and they seem to live an amazing lifestyle at the same time so you think it is all possible but what you don't see behind the photo is all the sacrifice like you said potentially peds and um the fact that well their personal life might be absolutely shit they probably pose for the photo i've heard stories of influencers uh, taking photos at restaurants on holiday and with with a meal and then not eating the meal because they're they've got eating disorders and yeah. all this sort of stuff so it's very easy to to be misled into thinking that it is all possible and you can pursue them all at once but the reality is the smaller your goal the more likely you are to achieve it whereas if you're trying to do all three work on all three areas at the same time you're spreading your resources and you know, if you're saving for a car, a house, a holiday at the same time, you probably won't get any of the free. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Pick one. Yeah. Yeah. I think p- people don't seem to understand that sometimes adaptations uh, occur on contradictory pathways. Mm. Right. And it's like, you know, we've all had those clients turn up and they go, I'm going to drop some body fat here. I want to build my shoulders there. I'd love to get my 5K time back. So I feel a bit unfit and I want to get back to playing football. Uh, a little bit of injury prevention here because my hamstrings used to feel really tight when I'm playing football. Okay, cool. So, you know, that's phase one, that's phase two. So we've got <laughs> nine months, nine to 12 months and they're like, what? Um, yeah, exactly that. Yeah. I've, yeah. I think you can't knock somebody for being ambitious and knowing what they want. But I think it's increasingly difficult to give people reality checks to say, listen, there are limits to what the human body can do. And because you have other demands in your life, we need to aim a bit lower and just start getting wins under the belt. I think that's another important thing that rather than setting your goals astronomically high and then feeling like you're failing all the time, aim smaller and then 
start creating some positive momentum, keep keep people in success, and then more success tends to follow. Yeah, that's nice. That's so important because it comes back to that identity, doesn't it? Like if you're identifying someone who wins because you're ticking the in mm. the boxes and had this conversation with a client earlier and he said to me he was like um i mean you know this was a guy but super relevant for females too he was like i don't have that voice in my head that you know lets me kind of have cop outs and I, you can not worry about that he was like, i don't have that voice when it comes to business and i was like do you know why that is and he was like why and he was like you identify as someone who is an entrepreneur a businessman you identify as that it's what you do it's who you are you're proud of it mm. right therefore the reason you don't have those voices in your head is because it's not an option. It's non-negotiable. The reason you have those voices in your head when it comes to health and fitness is because you do not identify as an athlete. Yeah. You go, well, yeah, I'm not an athlete. I'm like, you train four or five times a week hard on purpose. Your physique hasn't caught up yet, mm. but your daily actions, some of them, and the ones that are stressful to the body, your daily actions and your goals are to be an athlete, essentially. Mm. So you need to change your identity as someone who already sees yourself as that because then that voice in your head, okay, it's not going to go away like that. Now I've said it, of course not. But you can start to go, no, thank you to that voice. I do need to focus on sleep, eating proper nutrition, getting in enough calories because I am an athlete. I see myself as an athlete. I have those, I have those goals, right? Again, fitness is now a sport in and itself. He would like to do high rocks in November. And it's about changing that identity, isn't it? But a very important part of that is then having self-belief that Mm. you're, you're winning and not setting your goals so ridiculously high that you see yourself as a failure, then obviously ties into that. Yeah, I love that. I think that's really, really important and definitely underappreciated. There's a nice way, I remember hearing a sports psychologist talk about it, and the question you've basically got to ask yourself, I think he was talking to a junior golfer who used to have tantrums on the course, very talented, but didn't have the behaviour of a pro golfer. So do you want to be a professional golfer? He's like, yeah, yeah, I want to be like Tiger Woods. Okay, so when are you going to start behaving like Tiger Woods? And it just knocked him dead. Just He was stunned to think, actually, yeah, Tiger Woods doesn't have tantrums on the golf course, so why am I having a tantrum on the golf course? And if you go through life thinking, what would Tiger Woods do in a golfing situation, that won't lead you far wrong. But yeah. It'll lead you yeah, about as spot on as you could possibly be, <laughs> yeah. won't it? So, yeah, no, it's, it's so, it, that, that is so important. And I, I mean, m- maybe you've seen this too, maybe not. Obviously, I've got a fairly limited lens on the clients that I've worked with, which is, you know, a good few hundred over the, the last eight years. So it's not a small sample size, but of course it's not massive. I feel like I've seen, uh, in, in my experience, a kind of a, a difference between guys are much um, are a lot more able to kind of change that identity mm. and see themselves as I am someone that's, you know, worthy of success, happiness, a good physique, health. I'm going to prioritise this. I'm going to put myself first. This is what I'm going to achieve. Um, whereas I feel like my, my female clients have often struggled with that a lot more. And, you know, there's maybe some thoughts I've got on why that is from an evolutionary standpoint in society. But I don't know, is that something you've seen over the years with your with your clients or, you know, not, not really? Um, interesting. Yeah, I've never really reflected on that. I think potentially, I think there's probably a hint more anxiety. They're a little bit more worried and... Um, yeah, I don't want to generalise, but I think that tends to be more prevalent in female clients, that they're just a little bit more worried about getting it wrong, um, probably because uh, especially the weight section is traditionally a more male-dominated area, that they're worried that everyone's going to be looking at them and judging their form and th- those sorts of things. But yeah, I think you're probably right in that overall it tends to be that way. Yeah. So if we've got this kind of, 
yeah, again, call it summarize it as a, as a problem in females in particular that are yep. you know overtraining and uh, all of the potential issues that occur from that. You know, we've got the the potential even going as far as hypothalamic amenorrhea, losing your menstrual cycle. What are some of the warning signs that that women can look out for? Because in my experience, so many of these things have become normalized, especially when you're in this little CrossFit bubble or this little gym training bubble. That a lot of the time they don't realize that these red flags are actually red red flags when it comes to your health actually declining. So mm. um, what, what would you say to look out for? Yeah, well, I specialize in biomechanics. So I think for me, most of the things that the warning signs are, you're just picking up lots of niggles, lots of injuries, you're joints feel beat up rather than like muscle soreness is normal to a certain extent and if you're training hard then that's to be expected and not really a concern unless it's chronic and takes ages to go away but when you start picking up joint injuries uh, recurring joint pain that's probably a sign you're either pushing yourself too hard doing too much or you're not moving that well and a lot of these athletes will ignore them and push through because they think that is normal and it is commonplace in elite athletes because in elite sports you have to be pushing your body to its absolute limit that's kind of the price of admission if you're not especially in these what i'd call suffer sports like things like crossfit or things like endurance sports you will be uh if you can win those without pushing your body to its limit, then you are something really, really special. But most people will need to push their physiological limits. And when you're doing that, stuff is going to complain. Joints are going to complain. You're going to feel beat up relatively often. But if you are not that serious, then if we come back to the health, performance and aesthetics triangle, your joint health is now negatively being impacted. You're, we you're potentially wearing out your joints. You're putting stress on the structures that we potentially don't want to put stress on. So we need to have a little checkpoint to say, is this really what we want? Is this going in the direction that I want? Because I'm here to get fitter, stronger and more athletic and feel better, but I'm actually starting to feel worse. My energy levels are lower and yeah, stuff is aching and like sore persistently. And I've now got new niggles that I didn't have before training. <laughs> yeah, I came here to get rid of those. What's exactly. going on? Exactly. Like, you, uh, this is one of my issues with CrossFit training in general. And it's purported to be a general physical preparedness program. But I have a very biased view because a lot of people come to me with injuries. But the number of people who do a lot of CrossFit and then get hurt from the smallest other sporting activity, like tennis, football, running, whatever it might be, if the body was generally physically prepared, you should be the most robust against those sports. But the, the reality is that you're not. So why is that? And we're talking about it offline, but you know the gaps in the CrossFit methodology, it doesn't cover all movements that the human body is capable of. It doesn't prepare you for every sport under the sun. And I think it's that's too much to ask of one training system, really, to say, you're going to make me ready for ultimate frisbee and weightlifting and horse riding and golf and tennis like there's such uh varied asks of human physiology that to say that you know three to four hours a week we can tick all those boxes and make you bulletproof against anything is a bit of an overreach so i think having the perspective to see that and have a more balanced conversation around what do i actually want to be able to use my body for 
and how can I best prepare it for that? And CrossFit can certainly be a part or a big part of that. But when you start getting these signals back from the body of like, oh, that knee's starting to hurt or I'm getting a pinch in my shoulder, that's your cue to investigate it and say, is the way I'm going about this really serving my interest or am I just doing it because everyone else is doing it and that's what I think a good fitness person should be doing? Yeah. So what, what for those people listening that aren't sure what a general preparation phase is, a GPP phase, why is that quite important to understand us kind of a, an everyday athlete, especially if you're someone that maybe is looking to uh, take your training to the next level, so to speak, with something like CrossFit or if you've had a break from training and you're maybe looking to, to get back into it? Yeah. So you can polarize training into general and specific. So general, the idea behind general physical preparedness is that we have very varied movements which should be should serve us in multiple ways so if we work on the foundational movements then we can be more ready for more different things whereas if we do very specific things then they prepare us for a narrow narrower band of activities so let's take um, an example Golf, for example, the golf swing is a very specific movement and a very specific skill. So if all you did was hit golf balls, you'd become very good at hitting golf balls, but you might not have a much improved squat. You might not be able to pick your child up off the floor with low injury, much lower injury risk than somebody who didn't play golf. Whereas in a general physical preparedness phase, we're looking at the fundamental movement patterns. We're trying to be robust against more unknown demands on the body but the reality is everybody uses their body in slightly different ways so your idea of general physical preparedness might be different from mine might be different from joe Bloggs's. so it's always an opinion rather than a fact what what constitutes general physical preparedness so the more and the better an individual knows what their body is going to be used for the better they can prepare for it. Like if you're a golfer, you know you need to be resilient against hitting X number of balls per week. If you're an Olympic weightlifter, you know you need to be resilient against that. If you're a busy mum who picks up a two-year-old and a four-year-old a lot and they wriggle a lot and you've got to put them in a cot or whatever, you know those are the sorts of movements that might throw your back out. So you can prepare really well for that. But when you have a broad brush general physical preparedness program that claims to be all things to all people it's actually very difficult to tick all the boxes for everybody's use case for their body and i think by and large crossfit does a really good job of it but expecting it to be the panacea of fitness i think is an unreasonable demand of one training system when the constraints of writing a, a class program are that you're going to have hundreds of people per week go through and they need to be able to do it the logistics and the, of the space and the equipment all factor in as well um it's a bit of a tall order in my opinion yeah it is it's, it's a hard task to pull off for sure but if we if we've got someone right we've got this person they want a little bit of everything they do want to look good aesthetically mm. they do also want to be fairly strong they want to be able to get under a barbell and, and squat um they maybe want to be able to run with a little bit they want to kind of be ready for a bit of anything how would that person kind of structure their their training over the week, the month? Like, what, what? Give me some insights into kind of how you would approach that programming in a, in a GPP phase for someone that wants a bit, a little bit of everything. Well, we need to define what everything is to that person yeah. as the first stage. So 
getting the clearer you are on your goals and your outcome, the easier it is to get you there. I think there's a thing I always say to my clients is I can't tell you what you want, but I can tell you how to get it. So if you yeah, outline those things, like if you want to get stronger, what does strong look like to you? When, if in six months from now you could look back and say, I've got so much stronger in your mind, what do you think that looks like? Because somebody might think that means doing their first pull up. Somebody else might want to deadlift 150 kilos. So different people have different opinions on what strength is, what fitness is. And I think if you can visualize in your mind, this is what I want uh, my body to look like. This is how I want my body to function. These are the things I want to be able to do. You essentially, that's your B, your point B. And where you are today is your point A. And we need to plot a journey, filling in the blanks. So what are the small action steps we can take that take us from A to B in a sensible, steady manner? Because if your deadlift today is 60 kilos and you want to lift deadlift 150 kilos, you need to probably expand your time horizon to realistically get there. Um, yeah, so that's the, 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 the big picture process I would go through. And then the specifics we would, yeah, center around the point B, what do you want to be able to do and what are the stepping stones we can plot towards it? Yeah, I mean, it sounds like a bit of a simple, obvious answer, doesn't it? Get, just get clear on your goals. But yeah, people don't really do that, do they? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. what, why do you think people struggle with that? Is it, is it not kind of knowing what they would like to aim for in terms of not knowing what's possible? Is it confusion with so much information available? Or Because that's definitely something I've seen is that people will come to me and they'll, they'll have a vague idea of their goals, but they're not really coming to me with specifics. And then when yeah. you kind of try to do that like wise task of digging a little bit deeper to, to really understand the client, they also really struggle to answer why they want that. Why is that going to make them feel better? why do they want to achieve this yeah it's yeah it's a mystery i think there's a lot of reasons probably why they can't answer it i think a lot of it is doing what they think they should do like this i have this phrase like the notion of a good fitness person a good fitness person does yoga three times a week a good fitness person doesn't eat carbs a good fitness like all these sort of random things that notions that people have in their mind of what a good fitness person does and like oh i'm not fit because my 5k is over 25 minutes whatever it might be but that's in their mind a fixed bit of data which they haven't ever challenged so they're going to be influenced by what they see in others online wherever as to what they think they want and a lot of people chase aesthetics thinking that's going to make them happy i think that's the classic fitness story right in that you know, I was overweight and then I got into great shape and then I realised that actually my problems were more about self-confidence and psychological things. But it doesn't mean it was a waste of time. You're probably healthier now and you've learned a lot about how to look after your body. So it's always an iterative journey to achieve one goal, maybe realise that wasn't what you really wanted. So you don't need to get too deep on it to say, I need to understand my purpose and the meaning of life before I start my fitness journey. I've been waiting a long time to start if you wait for that one. <laughs> exactly, you? yeah. But I think just having something that you feel motivated to work towards and that you will enjoy the process of, I think that's another important point in that, you know, because your friend does X, Y, Z, doesn't mean you're going to enjoy doing those things as well. So you need to make it work. You need to make it realistic within your lifestyle. Um, 
And yeah, I think what would my practical advice be for somebody who's not sure what they want? I think sit down with a pen and paper for 20 minutes and you'll probably get close enough to take some action steps in a meaningful direction. I think that's one of the most valuable parts of coaching, isn't it? Is it forces you to sit down, take time away from your busy, stressful life and actually go inwards mm. and answer questions, mm. <laughs> which is something that people in theory could do without a coach, but obviously don't. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's arguably one of the most valuable parts of at least the onboarding initial process of coaching. Yeah, massively. Like I've had that conversation several times with people who, one of my clients said he wanted to improve his Fran time. Fran's like a notoriously brutal CrossFit workout. Um, which is 21.59 of thrusters and pull-ups. And it's a horrible pairing because they're complementary opposites in that one movement doesn't interfere with the other, really. So you can get yourself into a very deep metabolic hole very, very quickly. And um, we were working on it for a while. And his, the training was brutal because that's the nature of the workout. And then we caught up one day and his time had got a lot faster and he's like, yeah, I just was thinking, like, why am I doing this? And I said, that's a very good question. I don't know why you're doing it because <laughs> I wouldn't want to be doing this if I was you. And in his mind, that was just a key metric for what a good fitness person can do. A good fitness person has a good friend time. So like, I want to get my friend time down. But the reality of chasing that goal was really unpleasant. It was lots of hard workouts, lots of you know, sucky getting in that hole and yeah, suffering. And I think he's now better off because he did that because he know, he knows something now that actually isn't that important to him. So which is almost, incredibly valuable. Yeah, it's a good process of elimination, which is why I don't think it's too important. You get too deep to figure out with 100 percent certainty what you really want. But I think going through that process, ticking off or moving towards a certain goal and thinking, is this really important to me or am I just doing this because I think I should be doing this? That's the key part, though, is don't be too stubborn to ask that question. Yeah. Yeah, um, that that little story there reminds me of that. There's this guy at the gym, great guy, uh, fantastic shape, pretty good CrossFit athlete. You know, considering he's forty uh, odd, wife, couple kids, and um, he he wasn't going to do the open. Obviously, the open's not long finished. He did the open, and then I was chatting to him the other day, and he was like, "Why am I doing this?" Which is like, everything hurts. I'm forty, yeah. he's like a successful businessman, great shape. I'm just going to go next door and just pump weights. And I looked at him and I was just like, I, I kind of got the impression that, you know, he, he liked just being a part of the community, right? Yeah. Which is so key. And I was like, you know, you can still walk into this side of the gym and say hello. And he just kind of had this like moment where he just looked at me and was like, maybe that's why I clung on to this for like too long. Like yeah. the door's there. You just walk through. Like I don't really do that much CrossFit. I just walk through the door and I'm like, say hello to my friends. Like the community doesn't go away. Like you're, you're in it now. Yeah. Um, and that, that, I think that was a bit of a realisation for him, which is, is very much why I've enjoyed training for High Rocks. Yeah. And I think it is important to reflect on that. And it's that I can, there's 16 of us doing it, right? Which mm. is in itself, I think, pretty cool. 16 in, in one friendship group, all doing the same same comp day. So that's awesome. But it's doing something with my friends. Yeah, there's a bit of competition between us, but it allowed me to push myself again in an environment where I'm training with other people and there's some data to it. And I really like that because going back to my initial roots of how I got in first into training was, was more Thai. So my strength and conditioning was to get better at fighting. Yeah. And even though that's an individualized sport, it's actually arguably the biggest team sport there is, right? You need pad holders, you need sparring partners. 
it's obviously incredibly painful. So you need great people around you. And it just makes me feel like I'm back in that environment where there's like 10, 12 great guys. I mean, we've got a bunch of girls doing high rocks too, but you know, you, you typically, um, at least when I first started doing more there wasn't that many girls doing it. So it was mostly guys, but it was just about being in that environment, having great people around you and all working towards this common goal. We've, we're all going to this gym, um, you know, for there's a fight night against this gym at this stadium on this day. And it kind of feels like that again. So it's about getting, yeah, just clear on, on what it is you actually want from your training. And then all of a sudden the goal almost kind of jumps out. And I was like, yeah, I should do high rocks. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, that's a really lovely description of, well, I love the way that you articulated that to your client that yeah the door's still open you can still chat to people and yeah he's not even my client just a member so, yeah right yeah. yeah so yeah i think that we slagged off crossfit quite a lot this podcast but <laughs> i still am overwhelmingly in favor of it and mainly because of these intangible benefits the community side of it is pretty unparalleled i think and that if you've done crossfit or you've trained crossfit or you're happy to go to a crossfit box you'll be welcome in thousands of gyms around the world yeah. with open arms everyone is how cool is that yeah there's i don't think there's anything else that is quite like that maybe martial arts um certain martial arts are like that um but there is just a level of respect that goes with it and the com i think the common suffering is a big part of it that you will go through something together and that's why it's quite bonding you know if you've all buried yourself in a workout everyone's on the floor absolutely broken and exhausted you somehow feel closer to the person next to you, even though you haven't said a word to them necessarily. Yeah. And I think that is quite special, which is why I think a lot of people hang on to it because they're not willing to give that side of things up, even though they know the training not, might not be physiologically the best thing for them. And I haven't seen a great substitute yet for it. I've just started doing Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and that ticks that box for me quite nicely as well. And that you have, you see the same guys in class however many times a week and like you said there you've all got the same goal you're all working together like it's, it's such a weird scenario you're basically rolling around on the floor with a bloke and he's telling you how to choke him better mm. but that's, that's for some reason really bonding and yeah. there's, there's you know you've got each other's yeah. interests at heart i wonder if there's weird. something there yeah uh, who knows but um yeah i think in crossfit it's not entirely dissimilar in that you're trying to beat somebody in a workout but in the first half of the class you're giving them technique pointers and how to lift more weight so they might actually end up beating you and because you're all and when you do you clap for it yeah how cool is that yeah so there's a lot of positives and i think we focus very heavily on the injury prevention side of things the physiologically optimal side of things but the human emotional connection side of things is a huge benefit to the fitness industry when it's done right. So that can't be underestimated. 100%. And I think that, I mean, there's so many things we can talk about there, but your example earlier of, um, you know, things, these, they're certain continuum, right? So if for you being physiologically optimal with your training is not the most important thing, which is absolutely fine, it's community, mm. then maybe CrossFit is the most optimal way for you to train. Yeah. Because as you correctly said, and also correctly said regarding martial arts, you can go to any gym in the world and you'll have a home there where you can walk. I'm actually a girl that I'm friends with. was like, I want to move to Manchester, but you know, people and this and that. And I was like, come start doing CrossFit with us because you'll be able to walk into a CrossFit box and just have yep. a group of friends. 100%. Um, I actually was writing a caption for a post the other day and I was like, obviously I remember me five years ago, it wasn't that long ago. And I was the guy that kind of bashed on CrossFit because of the injuries and it's not optimal. And I wrote a caption the other day regarding, you know, like um, 
I genuinely believe this for girls as well, but I was kind of talking about how as, you know, guys, we should definitely be able to do martial arts or, or strength train and, 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 you know, push yourself. And then I kind of write, I was like, or get into a CrossFit box. And I was like, I can't believe I'm writing that like, you should be either be involved at a martial arts gym or a CrossFit box yeah. in the same sentence. If you said that to me five years ago, I would have <laughs> been like, get out. Like, there's no way I'd ever say that. But I did, I wrote that. So yeah, one of the two, definitely. Um, people should people should sign up at. Yeah, I completely agree. I think it's probably a function of the way the world is now that there are less community-driven things available and fitness has become that thing. It's kind of like a lot of people's church that... You know, it's a regular thing you attend. So you see the same people, you talk about the same topic together, you learn a little bit together. Um, and yeah, I think especially in London, where it can be quite a lonely city, a lot of people make it their local family. And there's something really nice about that to, to see yeah. people just develop really close friendships quite quickly. What I love about this is it's not at all where I was expecting this episode yeah. to go, but uh, if you are in Sussex, then uh, yeah. great CrossFit box. Yeah. Um, where where would you recommend in, in London? London, there's a lot of good ones. I go to Wit, uh, Wit Fitness in St. Paul's, but there's yeah a bunch of, like, if you just Google CrossFit box London, all of them are good that I'm aware of. There aren't any where I think I've heard that people... Uh, maybe there's one, but I won't name and shame. But by and large, uh, the biggest one would be CrossFit Shapesmiths in Clapham Junction. That I've got a few yeah, I've got a students and clients there. And it's probably the biggest by numbers. And I know they do a lot of social stuff, uh, yeah, which she looks loves like it. loads of fun. Yeah. So, yeah, sign up to a CrossFit box. Um, bringing it back around to this kind of like, you know, uh, problem that a lot of females in particular are, are experiencing. Mm. How do we start trying to solve that? They're on low calories. They, as you correctly said, we've got all of this stress coming in. And actually, I want to touch on that for one second because that's so important is that no one views, one, they don't really view exercise as a stressor <laughs> because they think it's the opposite. Like, Training's my therapy. Maybe you actually need actual therapy <laughs> yeah. if you think that. And two, whilst mentally it might be nice for you, physiologically it is a stressor, especially yeah. if you, as we've now established, are actually an athlete and you're pushing yourself, right? Training yeah. is a stressor. It needs to be, otherwise there's no Doesn't adaptation, work. right? Yeah. So, you know, they, they don't understand that, but then they also don't understand that all stress is stress. And there's actually a name for that, right? It's allostotic load. And I like sharing that because it helps people to understand that all stress is stress, whether it's internal, I've got an injury, whether it's lifestyle, whether it's trauma, whether it's training, they can now start to understand how all these things can have the same physiological response because okay, yeah. it's actually got a name for it. So they've got that going on. They're also probably trying to diet on low calories, which is also a stressor and impacts your recovery. They may be chasing too many goals all at once. They're not zooming out and trying to periodize it. Um, yeah, where do we start helping that that person? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I think it does vary by the individuals to which which one is the biggest issue. Like, because for somebody, it might be that they're on catastrophically low calories. For somebody else, it might be that they're just training way too much. Somebody else, they actually might be best served by sorting out their personal life before they are in the headspace to take on training or a, a new nutrition plan. Um, so this is where a coach does come in handy because you can have this conversation, you can review all the areas and make a prioritised action plan because just like in your training, you don't want to be tackling them all at once. You don't want to move house, start a new job, start a new relationship, start a new training plan, start a new diet. Like If you do everything, you try to do everything, you'll end up doing nothing very well. So 
get a grasp of your current situation and what the, the priorities are. And then I think always err on the side of small progress. Like just what are the small wins you can start to accumulate? And if you can tie those small actions to the big picture long-term goal, then everything just feels easier. Say, say it's an aesthetic goal. You've got a holiday in three months' time and you just think, oh, I want to look good on the beach. So now what would the person who looks good on the beach do when they're in the supermarket doing their food shop? What would they do when their alarm goes off and they've got a workout planned? All those little things, if you can see them in the context of the big picture goal, they become a lot, lot easier. Um, but in terms of addressing the problem, I think the first piece is just education. I love the way that you've described the stress situation there, that people can then see where am I taking on excess stress that isn't serving me like whatever it might might be your job it might be um, training whatever it is but where is where is the big input into my stress cup which is actually causing it to overflow because as soon as it's not overflowing you're actually then in a better situation to deal with the stress that's coming in and you might that might be the difference between responding to your workouts rather than tolerating them and surviving them and I'm sure you've had this hundreds of times but people can't get their head around that they can eat more food and then start losing weight and because the extra food relieves the stress they're actually in in a situation where they can start losing some fat and those little details yeah I don't think I've got any good broad blanket advice but within those areas just trying to get a current state analysis which you can have a targeted plan to work on yeah i think that for the coaches listening like it's so important to very much talk about stress and that onboarding process and there's no formula for allostotic load but one thing i always do i've done um i've got a few different talks that i do for pts right and uh, one of them is very much on this and i'm like you need to have i i call it a stress bucket stress bucket stress cup same thing And I've got a visual diagram made in Canva, you know, with my amazing design skills. And we've obviously got stress coming in. You've got the size of the bucket. Then we've got that tap, right? We've got the hanging out of your friends or doing whatever that relieves some Mm. stress. And that, for me, allows me to visually show my clients when I'm onboarding them. There's there's three kind of components to this stress bucket analogy. Where do you feel like you're sitting? Here's what I'm seeing from your intake forms. And then they understand that it's not just one thing. There's like three moving parts that are relative to each other. Um, so yeah, if you're a coach listening and you don't have that as part of your onboarding process, one, you're missing out on a very good educational opportunity and two, you're missing out on really great feedback that allows you to decide on how much volume can this person tolerate? How much complexity do I give them in terms of the stress of following the plan? Right. I mean, to put that into one specific example, this is a bit of a, an extreme example I know, but I had this one client, she's a friend of mine as well. She was like, I'm just unfit. I've been doing CrossFit for a long time. The CrossFit part's kind of uh, irrelevant here, right? You can insert any training style. I've been doing CrossFit for a long time. I'm stronger. You know, I've obviously learned some cool skills. She was like, I'm still unfit. I'm not getting fitter. I'm like, okay, cool. Let's explore that. So, um, you know, we're looking at everything. She's going through the onboarding process with me. And I'm like, her, okay, you're waking heart rates like around the 90s to 100s. Like this is high. So we have a bit of a chat about that. And she's, you know, like, no, no, I'm not stressed. And I'm explaining. I'm like, okay, well, waking heart rate, you know, this is a part of the stress response. When you're in that fight or flight state of your nervous system, all of these little adaptations occur, right? Heart rate goes up, blood pressure goes up. This is your body priming itself. 
just in case it needs to run for, run for your life or defend yourself, these systems are ready to go. And you're living here. You know, this has now been every morning. We've confirmed that it's accurate data. And then this allows us to have a conversation around some fairly deep trauma stuff that is not necessarily on her mind day to day, but is very much still there. And I'm like, okay, well, that very much could we know from the research that even if it's not necessarily like front of mind, like I'm stressed about this right now, the second, this is deep rooted trauma that's not really been addressed. It was not that long ago. That could definitely be influencing these physiological markers. So if, for example, you start feeling a little bit out of breath at 120 beats per minute, let's say, right? And we, me and you go on a run and I'm starting at 47. I've got a lovely buffer before I hit that 120 mark. Mm. You've got 20 beats. So are you unfit or are you starting from a place of being in a deficit regarding performance wise against me because your heart rate's already so close to that point where you're going to start feeling like my heart rate's elevated. And then of yeah. course it's going to spike a lot earlier than it is for everyone else. And of course, then that's going to lead to the, that feeling of, I feel unfit, right? My heart rate's high. I can't perform and all of the things that, that happen as a result of that. So getting her fitter, <laughs> I didn't necessarily have anything to do with doing more cardio. Yeah. It was, um, you know, some stuff that is within our scope as a coach, um, you know, stress management techniques, breath work, tapping, whatever that might be. But also it was like, okay, you need to really address this trauma, which obviously then very much falls outside of our scope. She got it down into the seventies, which is obviously still elevated just from kind of doing daily stress management techniques, wow. um, some core cool tapping videos, breath work, meditation, um, and starting to speak to someone about it. Um, yeah. And she's significantly fitter. Doesn't the, tra the training hasn't changed. It's the same coach doing the CrossFit programming who you know who is, you know, it's good programming. He's a great yeah. coach. So the programming hasn't changed and she's significantly fitter. Mm -hmm. So that is why, you know, if you're someone listening, it's so important to understand this because otherwise you're just going more, more, more. I need more cardio and I'm fit. So when you're barking up the wrong tree and two, you're beating yourself up unnecessarily. Yeah. Three, you're never addressing the real problem. And if you're a coach and then you have this like, you know, I've got to diet them harder. It's less calories. It's more training. It's more, you know, that standard bodybuilding approach. It only works 50% of the time for people and it only works for so long until it stops working. Yep. So what do we do when it stops working? Or yep. what do we do if it doesn't work in the first place? This is why we need to understand this stuff, right? Totally. I love that. I'm all for any sort of fitness game that doesn't involve fitness. <laughs> like, <laughs> I love that. Yeah. I, in sport, I was always the lazy one. Like if I could, I could perform better by being smarter or making better decisions, then that was what I was all about, um, which is probably why I don't like CrossFit because there's nowhere to hide. But um, even, well, that's not even true. Like in CrossFit, having good strategy and good execution yeah. and movement efficiency counts for loads. And people are surprised when they're stronger because they move better or they're fitter because they're less stressed. All these, there's so many wins that are outside the standard realm of normal fitness training. And that's an amazing example, I think, that... Hopefully a lot of people come away thinking maybe I could actually be fitter by managing my lifestyle outside of the gym and even outside of nutrition. There is more going on in the human body that impacts our ability to output. Yeah, so much more. And yeah, I, I really hope people do as well because that that's again you can only there's a, there's a ceiling right for how much volume you can do and how hard you can push so if we can make improvements by doing it in a way that's not fitness like not only is that really important for our, our, our over, overall health but of course it's important for you know her, her, her goals and um yeah more coaches i think need need to understand that because they just kind of have that kitchen sink approach and, and throwing more at it and yeah that that was obviously really valuable to her um started dropping weight as well at a rate that she'd never experienced before despite being on on very low calories because obviously you know that th that heart rate and cardio example right we can rinse and repeat that with 
different systems and different goals why you're not building muscle mass why you're not getting stronger but um yeah the same thing applies right for any of those so yeah a lot of the time these people they are training hard you know it's like often people will be like but i am in a calorie deficit why am i not losing body fat it's like, okay we well, Technically, you're not, but that doesn't mean that you're you are binge eating. And a lot of coaches then just jump on the well, you're not sticking with the you know the plan, or you're, you're definitely overeating. And the person's like, oh, I'm not. It's the same thing with training hard. Like a lot, yeah. of, a lot of people don't train hard, of course, right? A lot of people train really hard a lot of the time. So why are you not making the progress you deserve? Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, it's got to be something else. I think yeah. that's the the short story. In that, yeah, I think that's it's most upsetting when people are doing all the right things. And then they start trying to blame themselves. They're like, but I'm sticking to the nutrition plan. I'm doing every single workout exactly as prescribed. And for somebody else, they would be absolutely smashing it if they had that level of compliance. But because there's something else going on outside of their sphere of understanding, they're not getting the results that they expect. And it's hard because... The human body is complex and like we said there's so many other variables that feed into what we think of just as fitness that yeah there are just so many schools of thought and i don't know what the solution is like you can there's a there's certain people in the fitness industry that have sort of branched out and they're seen as quite kooky because they start getting more spiritual and they start bringing in different pseudoscience techniques but there, there's definitely something in that like we need to be able to acknowledge and appreciate the other facets to the human experience without getting a yeah. bit too woo about it because it's very real and has a significant impact on how people get results in the gym yeah 100 percent. i mean obviously falls kind of about you know our area of expertise and not kind of for this podcast but you know i'm very much up for exploring those boundaries i've done plant medicine a couple of times myself helped with some fairly deep-rooted trauma i don't clinch and grind at night anymore i don't have nightmares anymore um, that clenching and grinding gave me, I still kind of have headaches, but it gave me really bad headaches. At one point I couldn't open my mouth more than like, couldn't open my mouth. I had to have acupuncture and dry needling every single day through my masseter for about four months in Thailand, pretty much every single day, wow. which had a massive financial cost because the clenching and grinding was so bad because of some deep rooted trauma. So if I'm then someone that has performance based goals, but I'm not achieving them, am I? I'm yeah. not, I, I, I was barely training in that time period. So yeah, that's again a bit of an extreme example, but a lot of people are having these other issues which they don't think are anything to do with health and fitness, which really they need to be addressed because that is why they're getting injured. That's why, you know, okay, they, they're, they're leg, their ligaments aren't, you know, responding too well and they're always feeling built up, right? They're just, they're so stressed, they're so inflamed, they've got so much trauma, they're not sleeping well. And it's like, it's hard to have those conversations, isn't mm -hmm. it? Because I think a lot of people aren't ready for that conversation. Yeah. As coaches, it's like, is it in our scope? Sometimes it is, sometimes not, it really depends. Um, so yeah, it, it's difficult. But I mean, have you got any kind of two parts to this question? Have you got any practical tips on like, if you're working with a client, and you're like, okay, there's a lot more that we do need to kind of discuss here in order for you to achieve your goals. The reason you're not achieving them is not necessarily a programming issue. Yeah. There's some other stuff that we need to chat about. One, how do you get maybe buy-in from that person to actually want to have that conversation and then follow it? Because they're like, I came to you for a training program. Um, and two, how would you maybe speak to someone if they are feeling like, yeah, I'm not ready to have that, that conversation um, or I don't think that's relevant for me how would you potentially start to allow, you know, say what advice would you give to coaches, sorry, to basically say, here's how we can equip you to potentially have these conversations with clients because we want you to be able to get results with essentially 100% of people that you work with, 
not the 50-ish percent that are like absolutely fine and it is just let's get you doing more and better programming there's this other stuff that's relevant to them yeah very good very good questions and tough ones i think for the first question as to how do you raise that with somebody i don't think you can do it unless you've built up some degree of trust so you have to have gone say going through the motions kind of trivializes it but you need to have given it a good go in the normal way. And I guess the client has to believe that you've done things right and it still hasn't worked. So even if you know it's not going to work, you almost need to show them that it doesn't work, if that makes sense, because they need to experience it themselves so they can then open up their mind to the possibility that there is something outside of training or nutrition going on. And because if straight off the bat, the first time you meet a new client and they're talking through their story and it's very obvious that there's an emotional issue going on rather than a training or nutrition thing. If you've come to them as a personal trainer, they're like, hang on a minute, this isn't why I'm here. Who are you to tell me that I've unresolved childhood trauma? Like, you don't know me, you don't know anything about me and maybe my last trainer was shit and that's why it didn't work. And... I think that's a very... Yeah, they put the walls up a lot of the time, don't they? Exactly. So I don't think the personal trainer is the right person to have that conversation immediately. So if the personal trainer was to have that discussion, the trust has to be earned. You have to get to know them on a personal level and show them that you have a good understanding of their situation and almost let them make the discovery for themselves rather than um, tell them and and diagnose them in an issue outside your sphere of practice, which I think we can't do. And I think it's important that I'm not a psychologist, um, I'm not a therapist, so I can't accurately or with any professional um, sincerity diagnose these sorts of issues. I can just get a feel for when I know a good training program has been delivered. I know it's worked with that style of training and nutrition has worked for the vast majority of other people so there probably is something else going on and it does get into muddy waters because i think it's a big criticism of the fitness industry is that people step out of their lane like you get personal trainers giving detailed nutrition advice when they're not qualified to do so you get them giving injury rehab advice when they're not qualified to do so so it's it is tough because it is all interrelated so there is overlap and issues do spill over from one lane into another um and i think the fundamental currency across all of them is trust like will they give you the credence that your opinion holds holds water and then you can agree a next step like maybe go and talk to somebody maybe do do whatever you need to do that isn't with the personal trainer and i think that's actually a really trust earning mm. uh, way to go about things because you're like look i would love to keep working with you but actually rather than buy a new block maybe the best thing for you to do is spend that money with another practitioner yes. who can help you and the irony is you'll probably end up keeping that client for life after they resolve, yes. resolve that stuff but um yeah up front you're kind of saying i'm not the right person to help you right now 
yeah i love that so much if people can't afford multiple services which obviously some some can't sometimes you know in a in a, in a world in an instagram world of business coaches and business <laughs> mentors at the moment it's uh you know i'll probably get shouted at for saying this but sometimes not making the sale is is one the right thing to do which ultimately is what matters yeah. but ironically long term is actually more more profitable and that's happened to me a few times people have come back um or eventually they've referred someone else because that is the ultimate trust horse you said and then four months later they're like oh by the way my husband wants pt and they trust you so much because they you know ultimately not taking someone's money when you could it's mm. yeah you how can you build trust more than that yeah um so yeah no i think that's a, a really really valuable point but yeah it is difficult isn't it there really is fine lines and i think that one thing that i know that i struggled with for quite a few years is just from my own well, i mean i got pt qualified at 18 so i think that it maybe wasn't like a lack of self-worth and confidence in in like a, a big way it was just a standard i'm young and i've only been doing this a couple of years but it's the idea that your words do have weight as a personal trainer like yeah. you are seen as a professional and people like really cling on to your words so you do have to be obviously super careful with the language that you use with that being said and i do genuinely mean that that's not just like me throwing that out there it's like a, like trying to save my ass i do think sometimes pts once they reach a certain point of experience and further education, I do think they should push the boundaries of what's in that scope. Because if I hadn't have had that conversation with that female client, for example, who again is someone I have actually known for a few years, I'm very lucky that the majority of my clients are actually at least acquaintances, if not friends or vice versa, become them. Um, if I hadn't have had that conversation with her, what's the alternative? Just let her believe she's unfit and keep programming more cardio. Like, no, I refuse to do that. So if you want to tell me that's out, of, not that you have, but like if someone wants to yeah. tell me that's out of my scope and I can't be saying that, then I'll be like, I'm going to keep doing me. So, but yeah, it's a tough one, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's spot on there. And that that's probably one of the key distinctions between a personal trainer and a coach. In the coaching relationship, it's much more interactive. It's much more holistic than, I'm not undermining personal training, but personal training, the core product is you turn up and train the person for an hour or whatever. Yeah. Whereas the coach, it's much more outside of that hour as well. And it's much more all-encompassing. You're looking at overall lifestyle. Personal trainers do do that as well. But I think if you were to look in the dictionary, I might be talking out my ass here, but if you look up the dictionary definition of a personal trainer, it's much more centred around the literal training, whereas a coach is more around overall guidance. If you think of like an athlete having a coach, they're almost like a father figure rather yeah. than a, right, this is your workout for the day, like a strength and conditioning um, coach should be thinking more holistically than just the instructor delivering a program. Yeah, I think that the terms are used interchangeably in the industry a lot of the time, in, in my opinion. Um, it's actually one of the first slides on the talks, the, the, the talks to PTs that I do is, here's the difference between being a PT and a coach, in my opinion, so that when I'm when you're listening to this as a PT, you're not looking at it going, how the fuck am I going to use this information? Like you're talking to me about systems and onboarding questionnaires and like the whole point for my talks to be relevant, at least most of it relevant um, in terms of how you'd apply it and use it with clients is you'd need to view yourself as a coach and be yeah. a coach rather than just a personal trainer that turns up and prescribes sets and reps and that's it, which is absolutely fine if that's all you want to do. It is just different. I still think you need a, a good understanding, right? Because of why they're not getting fitter inside their sessions. Um, but yeah, I'd say they are different. They are technically different different services and someone can be a great PT. That doesn't necessarily mean they'd be a great coach or, or, or maybe even vice versa. But um, yeah, I mean, that was 
oh, an amazing tangent, but yeah, <laughs> definitely a little bit of a, a little bit of a tangent. Um, but no, really great advice. I mean, but I mean, I guess to finish that off, since we've ended up going there, if if a coach is listening and they're like, yeah, I kind of want to obviously master the craft on the gym floor super important never stop learning exercise mechanics and anatomy and there's so much to learn there and i think mm. that actually yeah let me throw this in the mix because i feel like a lot of the time pts are quite eager to become coaches and they forget that first and foremost they're an exercise professional and they actually probably don't know enough about <laughs> about exercise like, yeah. you know i came to one of your uh, seminars not that long ago and absolutely loved it and learned some stuff like there's always more to learn as an exercise professional so definitely master your craft on the gym floor first but for people that do go okay i understand that these systems are all connected that one influences the other i can't probably truly change someone's life through just exercise alone i'm ready to try and become a coach uh what would you say to that person where where would they start what courses can they look into yeah big question um i think i touched on it earlier and that i don't so paul check has a bit of a funny reputation in the fitness industry but he's onto something in recognizing that everything is connected so he's created his I don't know what exactly, but I think it's the Czech Institute, yeah. which is multi, it's almost like a doctorate in seven years to go through all the various different levels. And it covers everything from exercise and anatomy through to like vision, like optometry, like hearing, uh, dentistry to get people's jaws aligned. And it tries to connect them all because... It's, at the end of the day, it's the same vehicle, it's the same body with all these various parts and they are all connected. So your jaw can affect your movement massively. Yep. And we, we're we always looking at things in silos. So we're trying to, to say this system is the way the human body works. And then somebody else will say, actually, no, this system is how the human body works. And this is how nutrition works. This is how the gut microbiome works. But the reality is they all affect each other to some extent and no one has enough all-encompassing knowledge to actually know what goes on. It's like, a, I remember one of my biology tutorials at university, he drew up, he didn't draw up, he had a poster in his office which was just the metabolism of the cell, like a single cell, normal human cell. And it's like a galaxy, like the number of different substrates and chemicals that are in any given cell in your body is mind blowing. And they're all in various different metabolic pathways and cycles that feed into each other. And it literally looks like a solar system when you map it all out. So even just from a biochemistry point of view, it's bonkers how complex the human body is. And then you start layering in the skeleton, the muscles, the brain, nervous system, all of these things are so incredibly complex. So that's probably a very overwhelming picture to paint for somebody who just wants to be a coach. Yeah, so now they're thinking I'll stick being a PT, cheers. <laughs> yeah, but that's probably good advice. But I think for me, you need to have enough deep expertise in one area and enough shallow expertise in the rest. So if you can appreciate where things should fit, but you really know your craft in one area, that's probably the thing that makes the most sense. What's the saying? Like, it's better to go a mile deep and an inch wide than a mile wide and an inch deep. There's a but place- clients expect the mile wide, don't they? They almost expect you to be physio, bit mindset-y, nutrition. Exactly. And I think we should have some level of knowledge, but you'll almost, you'll almost be pulled into 
expertise in the areas that you need it because you'll see the same problems recurring and you'll hopefully want to solve those problems so you'll upskill there but almost similar to training just start with the small wins develop expertise in one area start doing good work there then you'll probably be faced with a problem that you can't solve and realize that there's something else you need to get better at and then just plug that gap and keep if you keep identifying and plugging gaps you're going to end up in a pretty good place but as of now, I'm not aware of any system which I think is totally comprehensive in covering all manner of human health issues because it is so multifaceted. Yeah, I mean, the Czech Institute is definitely a, a great place to start. Um, I'm, I'm doing, I don't know if you've heard of Alan Cress and, and Vince Pitstick. No. Um, but bigger in America, I don't really tend to have too much for following here, but in my opinion, two of the best people alongside like Dr. Carrie Jones, who also works for for this company at bridging that coach, but having an understanding of all of this stuff, basically. Mm. Um, so their course is called Metabolic University. It'll, it'll take me about two years to get through. I've, I've not long been doing it and, and that's fantastic too. But yeah, Paul Check also very notable shout out. Great, great course. Um, so yeah, no, I think that that gives people a lot to working work at. Bring it kind of back around to the the, the female stuff. The reason we're here, yeah. <laughs> um, well, I mean, we can maybe pull that out. Slightly separate episode. I don't know. Yeah. I'm sure a lot of people listening are going to be female coaches. So there was some absolute nuggets in there. So thank you for sharing that. Um, one of one of the things that you mentioned off air, which I absolutely love because it's it's not done enough in my opinion, and I actually see it bashed by some accounts, including some females, is the idea that your menstrual cycle affects obviously your training. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> it's crazy it's, that that wouldn't be the case. Mm, I think that, like anything, the problem in this industry, right, is things swing too far. Mm-hmm. And now there's a lot of accounts, and I hate them. It makes me feel a bit sick every time I see it. Is and it's like, and they're women too, and they're like in your luteal phase, just rest and do yoga. And I'm like, okay, that that like is fundamentally wrong. I, I, how are you a woman posting that? Because I've had female clients hit PBs in their luteal phase all the time. It's roughly fifty percent of your cycle. Like, why would you not? Anyway, right, you get the point. So. Like everything in the industry, the pendulum swung, swung oh, the pendulum swung so far that way that I get why there's in some accounts saying the opposite because they're like calling that out. But like with the majority of things in this industry, the truth often lies somewhere down the middle, right? So talk to me a little bit about what you've seen with your female clients um, and the menstrual cycle, kind of looking at it for those listening through the context of remember that you are actually an athlete. Yeah. So yeah, there's a lot, lot of things here. Um, I think the first thing that's almost taboo nowadays is to acknowledge that there are physiological differences between men and women and there are significant differences when we come to exercise physiology and the menstrual cycle is one of those. So there's some really good papers online which I'll send you the links to put in the show notes on how estrogen affects um, the laxity in tendons and ligaments. So we can refer to those as the sinews, basically the less the non-contractile connective tissue in the body so if we look at the data from sport women suffer like between two and eight times more um, catastrophic ligament injuries so if you look at female footballers they're getting a huge amount more acl ruptures than their male counterparts interestingly they have a significant the lower incidence of muscle injuries. So I think it's like 40% less hamstring issues and like 80% less groin uh, injuries. And this is indicative of a very different physiology. That's yeah, so, not a coincidence. Exactly. Like this is you know, across almost all sports, we see a similar pattern. So why is that occurring? And 
one of the main reasons why this happens is that women tend to be more flexible. They tend towards hypermobility more. They tend to have more laxity in their tendons and ligaments. And evolutionary, this really makes sense because of childbirth. So they need to um, be able to deliver a child and they need to recover from childbirth. So that situation is really good for childbirth, but it's not quite so good for highly competitive and strenuous sport. And it's especially bad when estrogen is high in the cycle. And there's a really cool study where they measured the uh, patella tendon laxity throughout the menstrual cycle. And it was one to five millimeters extra uh, around ovulation, which is really significant. Like if you look at a patella tendon, it's like a few centimeters long, if that. And to have a five millimeter change in length across the month is like staggering to yeah. be honest and if we think about how that affects your physiology when you're training or playing sport you essentially have a joint that goes much further now before the tendons and ligaments catch tension so imagine like i think of ligaments almost like seat belts in that they're a fixed length and they stop the bones going too far from each other in the same way that if you break suddenly or if you have a crash in the car the seatbelt bites and it will stop you flying forwards through the windscreen you know earlier when i said about i love your analogy so much <laughs> okay, yeah. that's another one that i've not heard and yeah. they're just yeah, that's such a good way of explaining thanks what a ligament does yeah just thought of that just now um nice so the seatbelt just should catch and hopefully keep you close to your seat right so we know you know when you're you're trying to put your seatbelt on in a hurry. It always bites and it's so frustrating because you've got to slow down, let it go back and then pull it out slowly. Imagine if that seatbelt didn't bite in a collision and you flew a significant distance forwards as compared to it holding you closer to your seat. It's obviously going to be a lot less effective. And this is what we see in tendon and ligaments in female athletes. So this is why the muscle injuries are lower because there's more laxity, so there's more give. So actually that muscle doesn't get overloaded quite as readily as the tendons and the ligaments. So what does this mean from a training perspective? It means around that phase of the cycle, we need to be more conscious of how we load the body because a very flexible, lax female is going to be at greater risk of injury when they come to the end ranges in those joints or if they are putting high forces through those joints. Like in football, if you're cutting really quickly and changing direction, those tend to be incidents where you can blow an ACL. So if we can do anything to mitigate those situations, we should be treating female athletes differently to male athletes. And things that we can do practically around that is say you're doing something like Olympic weightlifting, focusing more on power variations rather than squat variations when you're close to ovulation would be one easy pragmatic tip to um, avoid putting so much length and stress through those tendons and ligaments. Going a little bit slower, focusing more on tempo reps and keeping tension in the muscles and controlling the range of motion. You see a lot of hypermobile female athletes tend to crash into the bottom of their squat and use that sign new connective tissue to help them come back which isn't a bad thing from a performance perspective but it does pose a greater injury risk um, also focusing more on control and stability so much more 
single limb work, single leg, single arm stuff where we're moving the body in all three planes of motion. So going sideways and rotating more is going to help the body to centrate and control the joints. So we're much less likely to exceed the range of motion, which is safe. Um, like ligaments and tendons tend to tear when we go too far into a joint motion. So if we can build resilience and control in those dangerous positions, we're going to be much better off. And because those sorts of injuries are more prevalent in female athletes, I think it's a very clear and obvious indicator that we should be adjusting programs to do so. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a brilliant explanation. So I, I guess I've kind of got two questions for that then, because if you're a woman uh, listening well, firstly, if you don't have a menstrual cycle for whatever reason, obviously this might be a little bit different, quick caveat, but you're a woman, you do have a menstrual cycle, you'll fall into one of two categories with what you just said there, right? You either will be able to adjust your programming or you won't, maybe because you play football, for example, right? So if you're a woman that can adjust your programming because you write your own programming, you go to the gym or maybe you go to a CrossFit box, but you can kind of like change things a little bit or dip in and out and sometimes do your own workouts, what might that look like? I guess it starts with obviously tracking the cycle. So knowing where you're at in the cycle, and then do you have like different workouts or different phases or different programs or yeah, what, what, what might, what might that look like? So yeah, around ovulation, you'd want to be slowing things down. You could like, so you might be stronger, but you'll have less control is the way to think about it. So you're going to be looser and um, what's a better word for it? looser and you'll have less tension you'll have so we always think about muscles creating movement but a almost more important function of muscles is to decelerate movement so when you're dropping into a squat the only reason you stand up is because at some point you've decelerated and stopped and then you're able to contract and create the opposite movement so that deceleration is paramount for injury prevention because it stops us going too far it's putting on the brakes before getting into that dangerous range of motion so having a greater emphasis on the eccentric part of a movement and controlling going into the dangerous position so one of my classic rants is knee valgus and how it's demonized excessively in the fitness industry the reason it's demonized is because it's the position where acl injuries occur which is true but it doesn't mean we should avoid knee valgus. If anything, it means we should train it more so we build up control, tension and resilience to decelerate going into valgus. If you imagine your knee is surrounded by tendons and ligaments, if they're all super loose, as soon as you go into valgus, there's nothing decelerating them going there. So there's going to be a very sudden, sharp, aggressive force, which is how an ACL can get ruptured. Whereas if it was surrounded by a nice appropriate amount of tension, strong muscles that can lengthen and decelerate the entry into the valgus, we're much more likely to go into it and come out of it safely. It's going to happen. Like if you play, if you're a human, you're going to access knee valgus. It's like almost that simple. So you've got two choices. Can you, are you preparing yourself to go there and come back safely? Or are you just going to avoid it totally and build no tension, stability and resilience for the position. It's so, to me now, it's almost getting frustrating to keep having this conversation. But I think it's very useful for people who um, have some say in their program to acknowledge that actually that position is not the devil and 
going there safely and learning to control it and getting strong there is a great injury um, reduction strategy. Yeah, no, brilliant. I think, I mean, we'll circle back round to like maybe how to kind of actually implement that if that's okay. But before I forget, if you're a woman, then you can't, you know, you can't change game day. You can't change whatever it is that you're doing. Um, what are maybe some of the best, you know, little tips you could give from a preventative standpoint? If, you know, you have got a football match, it, it falls on the day before you're ovulating. What what does that look like? Yeah, so I think petitioning people into competitors who don't have any say when they have to perform and people who do have say when they need to lift heavy and you know they're just training for life rather than necessarily having specific game days there's a lot more flexibility with that and you can move things around much more easily if you're a competitor and your matches fall can fall in any day of your cycle at the end of the day you need to be able to perform irrespective of what stage of the menstrual cycle you're in so in that case, it's it's kind of easier in that you should just almost train as if you didn't have a menstrual cycle and just start to build data points of how you felt, how things went. In So you might have the same session and you've done it on day 7, 14, 21 and 28. You will notice differences in how that session went and you'll start to build a catalogue of strategies for how to navigate the differences in your body. And one of my old clients who was a like, European champion weightlifter would be very attuned to understand which phase she was in doing which session and how she needed to adjust her preparation psychologically as well as physiologically. So if she was um, in the high estrogen phase, she would class that as her mong strength phase, where she basically just felt incredibly powerful, but quite loose and um, lacking in tension. So her positions might not be perfect, but she always knew that she was going to lift it and she'd be able to stand it up if it was in the right position. So for her, her strategy was to focus much more on accuracy and try and get her head into the uh, precision part of weightlifting rather than worrying about absolute strength. Whereas two weeks apart, she might have the opposite thoughts standing over the bar in that I'm not sure if I'm going to get it strength-wise, but I have a much better feel for where it is in relation to my body. So my accuracies, I don't need to think about as much. And I think you could probably apply the same to a similar principle to other sports in that I'm probably going to feel strong, but a little bit loosey-goosey. So I need to focus much more on accuracy when that's... Uh, when it's that time of the month as compared to other times where you're going to feel a little bit more taut and in control no i love that i mean that's not something i'd really considered too much was approaching it differently from a psychological perspective i've just obviously approached because you know it's not relevant for me right so i'm just approaching it from a physiologically what needs to change in terms of exercise selection maybe volume mm. maybe sets reps um but yeah that, that's actually a really cool point is just how she approached that lift and, and that workout from a, a psychology standpoint change based on knowing that her you know what, what her body's kind of naturally going to be better at yeah yeah um yeah, I think yeah. Cool <laughs> yeah. So the, the the app that i really love for this is, is wild.ai uh okay. that for me is is the best menstrual cycle tracking app because it was kind of created with athletes in mind again if you train on purpose you're an athlete right so, so the majority of them they're, they're not they're like you know fertility preventing pregnancy whatever it might be just general bodily awareness which is all amazing stuff but 
because we do know that the menstrual cycle does influence strength, performance, hunger, cravings, metabolism, and, and vice versa, what you do can obviously influence the cycle. It's really useful to have an app that was created with that in mind. So yeah, wild.ai, uh, yeah, fantastic app. And that's what I use. And, and one of the reasons what's really cool is there's a coach's dashboard. So just like on your programming app or your nutrition app, you can, as a coach for you, the coach's dashboard for your clients, you can do that with wild.ai. Whereas they used to have to like send me print screens of flow or clue or, or whatever, you know, there wasn't a coach's, there wasn't a coach's dashboard. So that's a really cool bit of software. So yeah, for anyone listening, um, whether you're a coach or, or you're a woman wanting to, to optimize this yourself, I'd, I'd recommend checking out wild.ai. Brilliant. Amazing, man. I mean, that was all of the stuff that I, I kind of wanted to get through with you, really, in terms of um, we've identified that there's a, a bit of a problem that's come with this trend and shift in the industry, albeit a really positive trend and shift, yeah. um, and hopefully some really great actionable steps on, on what we can do about it. But um, anything else that you'd like to add for, for now, Ash, in terms of that, what is the, the problem around kind of female training or any differences that, that females experience that you'd like to touch on? Um, I feel like there's something else I wanted to say. I can't remember it off the top of my head now, but I think one one other uh, feature of physiology that's important to acknowledge with regards to the ACL injuries is uh, the Q angle. So basically, because women have wider hips, they're more predisposed to that knee valgus position because their legs starting further apart than uh, the male equivalent. So having some acknowledgement of that and um, I'm actually working on a program for hypermobility because it's such a prevalent um, situation I see with female weightlifters and crossfitters. Their issues tend to come from the inability to decelerate and get out of positions rather than get into them. Mm. So most people think, we were talking about this off air, most people think of more flexibility is always better, but there is a, a definite inflection point in the sport of fitness where actually it's counterproductive and a lot of female athletes come to me with issues because they are too flexible maybe they've well they, they're more predisposed to be flexible full stop but a lot of them have a dance background or a yoga background or a gymnastics background so they've actively trained more and more flexibility which means they can be really good at things like weightlifting which have a high mobility demand but they'll have exactly the problem we were talking about earlier of crashing into the bottom of a squat without being able to put the brakes on so they can get under quite a low pull in weightlifting and just rely on those sinew tissues to then get them back up. And over time, that's just a lot of loading to that connective tissue, which doesn't recover as quickly as muscle because there's less blood flow to your tendons and ligaments if they they receive stress, they can't recover as quickly as muscles can. So it's almost like a sneaky in the background bit of damage that over time with chronic load can rear its ugly head. So in terms of practical advice around that, focusing on yeah, decelerating into those positions, adding in some pauses to control the range just above. So the thing I, I say to my weightlifters is you want to take the floor to the, on the way, take the lift on the way down, but get out before you hit the basement. So you don't want to be crashing into those tendons and ligaments. You want to use those muscles, uh, ideally stay in muscular tension more. If it's a one rep max, you're going to need to use everything you've got. But the rest of the time, from a safety point of view, you'll do much better 
focusing on more tension, more pauses, and not crashing uh, quite so aggressively into the end ranges of those joints. Mm. Do you ever find that that's hard to get people to buy into because they just want to obviously lift heavier? Yeah, yeah. And I think the thing with a lot of the biomechanics and movement mechanics stuff is nobody gives a shit until they're injured. And I totally understand because I was the same. So at the end of the day, you've sometimes got to learn the hard way that everyone if if you've never had an injury and you can train as hard as you want and you're always getting better why would you want to do anything different there's it's not logical to do so so you almost it almost takes that first injury for somebody to start buying into doing things differently and i i think i've made my peace with that i'm i don't try and push uh movement mechanics stuff on people who don't need it yet because they'll come to that realization themselves at some point down the road. If I, I, I've only met, I think two athletes that have no injury history, but if I was coaching them full time and they had no injury history, I'd probably weave some in, but only to the level that they would tolerate. Because like you say, it's, it's a hard sell to say, do this less sexy stuff um, for no perceived benefit that they can tangibly tell because they have they're never going to have the point of comparison of this was training before movement mechanics and this was after because it's one journey for them whereas people who've been injured they're like ah when i moved poorly this is the, the consequences that i suffered whereas when i started moving better then things started going better so i think it is just what it is in that case just learn the hard way sometimes yeah when we when we look at things like the Q angle and obviously the consideration that that does put more stress through the knees, how does that change, if at all, um, squat setup? And are there any exercises that you would use to improve that strength in the knees from a knee valgus standpoint? Um, and are there any accessory, accessory exercises that you would get females doing on the basis that that Q angle is different? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think I wouldn't change my advice for squat setup in that it's very individual and you just sort of sort of you'll feel when it feels best you'll feel strongest most stable and there's no hard and fast rules about it has to be this wide or it has to be this much toe in or toe out um in terms of decelerating knee valgus and controlling it good squat mechanics will take care of it in that if you've got a foot that functions well if you've got a hip that functions well they will guide the knee to where it should be and where it needs to be and I don't think there's anything over and above normal squat accessories that women should be doing. Um, I'm a, a massive advocate of all sorts of lunge variations because in a good lunge, you will access uh, valgus knee as well. Um, so, yeah, like the one that jumps out to mind now is if you do a forward lunge with a rotation in. So if you're doing right foot forwards, you actually rotate left that will drive your knee into more valgus. So if you do that with control, you'll develop exactly the right muscles that control access to valgus and also get you back out of valgus. So if I was going to say one one movement to work on that, that would be it. Yeah, no, I love that. I'd be a big fan of lunge variations too. I think people, are, people can very quickly see the benefits because the first time they do them, they're like, oh, I'm all over the place, right? And then it doesn't take that long 
yeah. to get feel better and get more controlled especially if you film the client you're like oh I remember this oh wow yeah that looked awful and now yeah. now look at it which is obviously really nice right because it, it's showing people that they've made progress exactly. is obviously an incredibly important part of our job as a, a coach and, and you as the individual feeling like yeah I'm making progress is an incredibly important important part of sticking with the journey exactly and I think that's the video is a really important point in that movement quality is as important as quantity so it's not just all about reps sets and weights like if you can control the movement better in terms of real world application that can actually have more benefit than being able to squat a heavier weight if you have more control of knee valgus say you're a footballer that actually has a better carryover to your sport because that's the position you're going to get yourself into so being resilient and strong there is more important and controlled than adding more kilos to the bar in a very standard, stable, bilateral exercise of the squat. Yeah, the body, I mean, it doesn't that many kilos are on the bar at the end of the day, does it? So yeah. is that something you often do with um, people is, would you say that, um, would you say that you often have to kind of take a step back and load the bar less and get them doing more dynamic movement and get them doing um, more maybe unilateral movement? Is that something that you'd recommend people consider having like a little phase off if and to just break up constantly hammering the barbells? 100%, yeah. I think it's very individual. So if I'm working with an elite CrossFit athlete, they're going to have to do a lot of barbell work. But almost without exception, everyone would benefit from doing more unilateral work. Life is unilateral. Walking is unilateral. Like any other sport is one side dominant like if you're hitting a ball throwing a ball whatever it might be the body has two sides that operate differently so well gait is always the, like the fundamental movement currency like the body is designed to transport us through space through walking or running so i think a much bigger percentage of our training should be respective to gait which is one of the reasons I like lunges so much is they're basically exaggerated gait. You're taking the joints to bigger ranges of motion than, but the same joint motions and muscle sequences as you would get walking or running. So it's great preparation for that. Um, so yeah, and I think one of my points of view is you want to be able to stabilize more uh, then you are able to force output in a lot of situations. So if you're super stable and your balance is exceptional, but your strength isn't that high, you're much safer than somebody who can create loads of force output but can't stabilise it. And this is where gym athletes get themselves into trouble when they go and play sports. Say you've been squatting loads, your legs are unbelievably strong, and then you run, change direction, and now you're able to create huge amounts of force that you can't stabilize or control so you can actually rip your own body apart because you're going into a position you haven't developed any tolerance in so from a safety point of view having a bigger emphasis on stability you're going to be safer when you go towards elite performance you're gonna like sail a bit closer to the wind because you want to take a bit more risk to get a bit more rewards but by and large for general population focusing much more on stability and single leg stuff will serve a lot of people very well.
Yeah, no, I completely agree. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad we got that in because that, yeah, that, that's going to be very beneficial if people do change their training. Um, Ash, thank you so much for that, mate. There were some really awesome gems in there and we flushed out hopefully something that's going to be really valuable for, for a lot of women listening. Um, but where can people find out more about you? Talk, talk to me a little bit about your coaching, uh, obviously your mentorship, and you've also got a podcast. So feel free just to, to mention those. Thank you. Um, yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. Some um very highly esteemed other guests. I'm honoured to be on the same guest list. Um, but in terms of my links on Instagram, I'm ashgrossman.coach. Grossman has a double N because uh, it's a bit German. And I also run the company called The Training Stimulus. So it is centred around movement mechanics education. The primary service is a six-month mentorship which teaches personal trainers, coaches, or manual therapists. So we get a lot of physios, chiros, osteos who want to add movement to their service delivery rather than just focusing so much on the treatment side of things. And in the mentorship, the goal is to upskill the individuals to be able to deliver detailed muscle imbalance assessments. So looking at people's mobility, stability and motor control across the whole body and piece together what's really going on and kind of get to the the root cause of the issue. Because I think something that people start to appreciate when they've had a frustrating niggle is that the cause of the issue is quite often somewhere else that is, say you've got a knee issue, it's probably something wrong with the foot or the hip rather than the knee. So we go deep into the investigation process on how to figure out what that might be. And I also co-host a podcast called Lunge and Lift, where we talk about all things health and fitness, lots of movement mechanics stuff. Um, We get some cool guests on as well. We've just had... uh, Hunter McIntyre, who's just oh, broken really? the world record back on, and he's a character. So that's coming out soon. Oh, I'm real. I look forward to hearing that. Yeah. Ash, thank you so much, mate. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Awesome.